In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And in Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the Friday Vine Pair Podcast. Tim, as you and the listeners can hear, I'm playing sick this week. With Adam out, Joanna out, just got to come through for the team. So apologize to, to everyone for the uh, audio quality on my end. Just uh, getting over a head cold, which, you know, it's always a delight for for this kind of work. So, yeah, you know, we're making <laughs> we're making do. Uh, I wanted to ask really quick before we get into today's episode, though, how are you feeling? Like first week on the on the second job? got through the first set of episodes you feeling a little more settled a little little more comfortable with this gig for a little bit yeah i feeling getting there zach you know getting there. i think some early nerves like pre-season nerves as i was telling you <laughs> offline <laughs> last week you know first game of the season just finding my swing again but now nah, i think we're we're, we're playing sailing now from here on in good to know it it probably helps that you also host a weekly podcast so you know hopefully it didn't take too long to get used to just adding a couple of more episodes to the to the routine yeah i'm just basically camped up in the studio here you know 24 <laughs> 7 now no it's been exactly. fun it's a lot of fun well tim why don't you uh introduce we've got a, an exciting guest for this week's episode and uh a topic that uh i think we're both interested in talking about but do you want to kind of set things up for us yeah, sure thing. So, um, yeah, today we're thrilled to be joined by Chicago-based Sean O'Leary, better known, for some at least, as the Irish liquor lawyer. Um, from my own perspective here and background, Sean's been my go-to source when it comes to all questions of a legal and boozy persuasion um, for, for a good few years now, Sean. Is that right? Maybe uh, two or three years at least now. And... The topic that we're talking about today is this incredible divorce that's playing out in front of our eyes and in the courts between one of the nation's largest producers of alcohol and one of the nation's largest alcohol distributors. It is, of course, the case of Sazerac versus RNDC. Uh, but Sean, yeah, welcome. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. I think you and I first connected on Cocktails to Go when that was going on, when I was a radical and present the idea of having people deliver cocktails and the sky was going to fall in and the alcohol world changed for the better. So th thanks for your coverage at that time. Yeah, no, incredible work you did there. And also that did get passed. And how's the sky holding up there in Chicago? It hasn't fallen down yet, right? No, that's the least of our problems in Chicago. So it's it's saved a lot of businesses and it's really been a positive. And, you know, when I t you know, tell people my involvement, well, sometimes I meet bar owners and it's really rewarding. They say, thank you so much. That saved us during that period. And we were able to survive. And, and that's really what it was all about, right? We we had to save businesses during that time. Yeah, no, fantastic work you did there. So definitely raised more than at least one glass to you over time on your achievements there and the, the folks that you did that good work with. I'm going to set up here just... This this case that I alluded to at the beginning, give some of the background, and then Sean, if you want to jump in and maybe highlight anything I've mixed, or we can take it from there. But essentially, this starts playing out in public at least at the end of last year. It's Friday the 30th, so holiday weekend, and in the afternoon, reportedly, the distributor RNDC receives notice from Sazerac that they're going to terminate their working relationship, which, if I'm not mistaken, is around three decades long by this point. Within an hour, 
Sazerac then allegedly sent out an email to its large list of industry contacts, trade people, media people. Um, this is a daily mu- newsletter that goes out from Sazerac CEO, Mark Brown. I subscribe to this and I actually do recall getting that email on that time and thinking, this is kind of weird that this is going out at the end of the day and this day being Friday the 30th of December. But anyway, Sazerac cuts ties and then quite quickly follows up with a lawsuit in January claiming that RNDC owes them money among some other claims. And then last week, I believe it's the end of last week or earlier this week, uh, we saw a counterclaim come in from RNDC essentially claiming that Sazerac is trying to circumvent the three-tier system of alcohol distribution. So I was just highlighting there how this is played out in public. And then I think it would be good for us now to maybe just go through the cases in a little bit more detail and provide that context too for the listeners who I'm assuming for many of the listeners, this might be the first they're hearing of this. What are some of the standout claims for you in the initial Sazerac lawsuit from January? Uh, Because as I mentioned, there are those potential or alleged monies owed, but then there are some other aspects to the case, the, the claim too, that I think are interesting and would love your take on. Yeah, so the interesting thing, obviously, is the money, and that's a breach of contract. And you have to remember, in a lot of states, you can't extend, you know, the term and uh, payment terms about 30 days, 60 days, even with states where it's not clear. If you're if you're a supplier and you're extending payment beyond 90 days, that may be considered a consignment sale, right? You have issues to deal with like that, with that nature. So the other stuff about the claims that Sazerac makes, I think a lot of this is going to be in discovery, right? Because if you read both complaints, you come to two radically different conclusions. Now, none of us know which one is right or whether the truth is in the middle because we we don't know and that's what the proceedings for. But you have Sazerac basically saying RNDC was so incompetent, we had to start up our own new sales force. And then they were bad-mouthing us. They were not paying us for product. And then they were also uh, canceling discounts and selling them at a higher price. Now, if you read the complaint from the other side, they're basically saying we're stranded on a desert island and we can't sell any product. So as the reader, you're like, which one is it? Is it they were selling it for a higher price or they couldn't sell it at all, right? It's, It's fascinating to see you know, two different sides of the story here. So, Sean, one of the things that was really interesting to me in in this initial lawsuit from Sazerac and then the countersuit is this point of contention around Sazerac's efforts to build its own marketing team functionally. And their claim in their suit that basically they had to do so because RNDC was so sort of derelict in their responsibility to sell Sazerac products. But what's interesting, I guess, about this is that A, it seems like this might be quasi illegal, at least in some places, like there are laws in certain states that basically prevent the producer from actively attempting to solicit sales for their product, even if it is, you know, technically distributed by a distribution company in that state. And more to the point, why is this a point of contention? You would think that for 
uh, RNDC, even if, okay, maybe it chafes a little bit that Sazerac is kind of operating outside the bounds of their previous agreement or, or, you know, doing something without kind of running it through their channels, more sales are more sales. And obviously that money has to flow through RNDC legally. So why is this such a point of contention? You know, it's almost like kind of cry me a river on the three-tier system argument they make. Because, I mean, come on, if you, you read this thing, according to RNDC, and I say according because I don't want to say any of these facts are, are sinks, sacrosanct and clear because I don't know. Um, you know, you can't sit there and say, okay, well, they're violating the three-tier system and you self-admit that you allowed them to use their system and they were ordering the product and telling you what to do. And then they also said they allowed their sales team to come in. So you basically, in, if the three-tier system was so important to hold up, you basically have admitted you kind of enabled this, right? And now, they said they were trying to comply with the laws, but, I mean, you you can't have your cake and eat it. Well, sometimes you can in life, but not so much in this thing, I think. In terms of that, just just to pick this up, you know, having your cake and eating it, I've got a question for both of you in terms of how notable you think it is that this case is playing out or this case involves Sazerac. And I ask that because, again, I don't want to make any claims here, but I would say that those who are aware of the three-tier system, some of the workings of it, and also... Sazerac's allocated products and the very nature of some of the um, the brands within its portfolio, there is this notion that exists out there that, again, I'm not saying is true, that Sazerac or perhaps its distributors has leveraged those highly allocated products and the demand for them to therefore ship other items and sell other items within their inventory. Does this just happen to be a coincidence that that is said to be true of Sazerac and they're not alone in that? Or is that a part of this case that we're discussing today? Well, if you look at Sazerac's claim, one of the things they're saying is that RNDC was actually doing this. And you, and again, this is the allegation. Now, I'm not saying this is truth, but this is what's alleged, that they were basically stating that um, RNDC was using Poppy Van Winkle and then selling cheaper stuff that wasn't even uh, Sazerac-branded products. So it, it's a really interesting allegation on the tight end sales issue. You really like R&DC rounding it about on this. Yeah, and I would add that one of the things that's interesting about this is whatever the legal findings are, whatever the actual practices were in this case, this is something that is a long-standing kind of – I mean, Sean could speak to this more – completely than I could. But this is something that I've seen firsthand, you know, as a buyer at times where, you know, basically, whether it's uh, highly allocated, desirable wine, spirits, etc., there is either an explicit or implicit basically like, hey, you want to get your hands on some of this stuff, the, the stuff you really want? Well, you've got to kind of play ball with us too. you got to buy, you know, you got to put, uh, you know, a bourbon from this distillery on in your well, or you've got to carry a glass pour from this distributor or producer to get access to the allocated wines. And, and some places are more or less explicit about that. It's my understanding that probably all of this stuff is largely, at least in spirit, if not in uh, letter of the law, kind of a violation of the way these systems are supposed to work. But again, this is the one of the many things that's challenging about 
the three-tier system, the laws are different in every state. They're differently enforced. They, in some cases, are more protective of, I guess, for lack of a better word, consumer access. In other places, more protective of the middle tier, the distribution tier. So I, I think that, you know, Tim, you know, a thing that keeps coming back to me in this, looking at this lawsuit is, you know, we've talked about it in terms of a divorce. And what's interesting to me is like, I don't think either party in this case should have a much of a vested interest in airing their dirty laundry publicly. I mean, we just saw in a different sphere how sideways things can get for big you know, beverage companies in lawsuits. I mean, with the Constellation uh, lawsuit yeah. against or with AB uh, InBev over whether Corona Heart Seltzer <laughs> is beer or not. And you take things in front of a jury and who the fuck knows what's going to happen. But even outside of that, you just you put all this stuff on public display. And so in some sense, it's surprising to me that this is being handled. In, I mean, maybe not that lawsuits have been filed, but if this goes beyond that, if this actually goes to trial in some way, I don't know, Sean. Would that would that surprise you to see this actually in court? Uh, you know, I think it. Uh, every everyone says that once something gets past the motion to dismiss, it's like game on, right? It, it's you know, I would imagine core heads would prevail. I mean, th- this is a divorce of epic proportions, and for the liquor industry to to have an analogy to the layman, this is like Brad Pitt and Angela Jolie, or like Princess Di and Charles back in the day, right? Like, I mean, this is. The, the two big players, but um, the point that has to be made is these disputes happen all the time. The problem is the suppliers are always smaller, right? And they, they're they having issues with their wholesaler, and they can't afford to go and take the steps Sazerac has. So do we have other cases out there that are very similar to this? And, you know, are we only seeing it because... There's a big player. I mean, we also saw RNDC has the Proby lawsuit, right? So RNDC hasn't had a good year lawsuit-wise because they're going against two well-funded parties on the opposition. And there's a lot of dirt flying in these two suits. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's really wild. And to Zach's point, this playing out publicly, I would urge the listeners who are interested in this case to download the most recent RNDC counterclaim because some of the language in there is very interesting and there are some some points that might make you chuckle if you if you're aware of some of what's going on. There's something I wanted to ask you though, Sean, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are are, are engaged in the alcohol industry, but some might have lesser knowledge here. And there was one phrase that stood out to me in this counterclaim, which was that. RNDC claimed that it was basically being treated as four wheels and a truck by Sazerac, i.e. that its only function was um, logistics and distribution of product. To most people's minds who aren't familiar with the industry, isn't that all a distributor is supposed to do? Like what else is, what other functions are the distributors supposed to perform? Because to my mind, yeah, distributor, you get something from point A to point B, and that's your job. Like, so what's the issue with that? Well, you know, I, I think they're trying to make it an issue, right? I mean, you know, f- uh, so what they call them, was it four, four wheels and a truck? I mean... Four wheels and a truck, yeah. Yeah, go, go, the, they basically told them, deliver your product. And we don't know what the record was before. Maybe, maybe R&DC was failing to meet a lot of the goals, right? 
and maybe they just got sick of them. We'll find out in the discovery pro uh, process, but it's kind of, um, you know, the, the sad lullaby from RNDC that, you know, our, our role has been demeaned to that, right? Well, maybe that's what they thought it should, Sazerac thought the role should be, right? And, um, you, you know, I, I think it's trying to gain a little sympathy in a lawsuit. I don't know how sympathetic judges are, but, you know, between that and the three-tier system, I thought the the term was kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely no doubt that a lot of the relationship that most people have with a distributor, even if they're on the buying side, is is that logistical function, right? They're the person who gets you your beer, wine, spirits at your restaurant, your bar, your retail shop, etc. And yeah, some you know, to come back to something you were saying before, Sean, about how this is a lawsuit of sort of equal sized partners, not a much larger distributor and a smaller producer. You know, it may be the case that. RNDC is mostly used to being able to dictate more terms to their producers because they're so big and so, you know, widely, you know, they're they're nationwide and so they control a lot of market share and and for them to say to a, you know, they can kind of maybe with many producers say like, hey, do you want to be in all 50 states? Do you want our massive, not just logistics, but sales, et cetera, team behind us? Like, that's the reason to come do business with us. And Sazerac may just see now, especially more than a decade or two or three ago, you know, they don't, maybe they don't need RNDC. Maybe they feel like they don't. Obviously, legally in this country, they, they need some sort of, you know, third-party distribution. They can't sell directly to bars, restaurants, et cetera, nationwide. But it could be the case that basically uh, they, you know, I guess it, it, the, the RNDC countersuit does really read to me more like hurt feelings than... I mean, I am not a lawyer for sure, but a lot of this stuff, like, you know, I don't think it's necessarily legally substantiated that a distributor should be the only sort of uh, engine of marketing of a product. Like, I, in my time, again, as a buyer, had lots of product reps from producers come through and, you know, they'd bring their spirits, their wine, et cetera. It was, it was what the producer's sort of market support role was supposed to be was to, you know, because a distributor both has its own, in some cases, you know, limited ability to provide that kind of outreach to, to accounts, but also because the, presumably the person who works for the producer is going to be the real subject matter expert. Their job is to come in and say, Hey, look, here are the wines from this winery or here are the spirits from this distillery or whatever. You know, if you want to order them, my buddy from, you know, RNDC or whatever is here, they can take your order, but like I'm the front person for the product. So to say that, I mean, maybe Sazerac perhaps took it farther by, you know, as it mentioned in the claims, you know, basically like sort of taking the orders and just sort of entering them into RNDC's system. But again, you know, these are, as you said, both that's kind of admitting to culpability on RNDC's part for letting that go on, but also like, it's kind of hard to say, other than just sort of hurt feelings, it's kind of hard for me to see, like, okay, your argument is that they weren't letting you sell their product exclusively, like, they were, weren't were allowed to, like, Sazerac's not supposed to market their own product to their consumers, like, that seems preposterous, like, you might as well say, like, they can't advertise, like, of course they can, it's their job to sell their product, and if they have to do it through the channel of, uh, you know, distribution, they're, like, by law in this country, they will, but that doesn't mean that they can't have other ways of connecting with their potential target audience. Well, you, you bring up two good points, Zach. One is, didn't RNDC uh, enable this four wheels in a truck? Because they they basically said Sazerac took over everything, and that was the agreement. And the other thing is, is when you talk about small brands, 
If a small brain just put their, gave their stuff to the distributor, hid behind the curtain, never did anything, they would be nowhere. And yeah. in fact, the small brands marketing help the distributors because the distributors have, you know, hundreds of brands and the small brand could go out and do the legwork and the distributor could deliver the product. So, you know, this thing that everyone has to keep separate, why would Sazerac even have a sales force and a marketing team if they could never do anything? Good point. I, I, so to the to the marketing thing here I, I and the points you both made there. Reading this, it reminded me of an interview I carried out last year with Guillermo Erickson Sousa, who's the um, founder of Tequila Fortaleza. And Guillermo was telling me that when he was first able to get Fortaleza into the US, into California, he accepted a meeting at a leading national distributor. He walked into the office and the person in front of him at a desk said, of course, we will take on your product and we'll get you in all 50 states. However, we need $1 million for marketing materials. So my question is this, to whom does the responsibility of marketing fall? Because if you don't want to be, and I'm not saying this is RNDC, I'm not naming the distributor here, but if you don't want to be four wheels, simply four wheels in a truck, then are there, why are we seeing instances where brands are being told that they need to be doing the marketing? Is that just because Fortaleza was a very small brand at the time versus something like a Sazerac, which is a spirits group? Or is this a case where maybe distributors are trying to have things both ways? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think it's the the attempt to uh, have one's cake and eat it too, as, as Sean said at the beginning. Like, my feelings on the distribution channels in this country, the three-tier system, are pretty well known to people who've been listening. I think probably mostly shared by Sean and probably by you too, Tim. But, you know, they are a they are a business that exists because the laws in this country require a three-tier system and such. You know, they kind of have collectively a monopoly on access to the places where people buy and consume alcohol. And so... It doesn't surprise me that they're sort of willing to be like, yeah, sure, pay us a million dollars and we'll take on your product. You know, who knows how long it takes you to make back that initial outlay. You know, it probably depends on how successful your brand is. And if it's not successful, well, tough shit, you're out a million bucks. I just think that, you know, it's it's really, it, it is a little bit like, well, you know, what can you get away with in that position? And if you are in that situation, as we've been describing, negotiating on the distributor side from a position of immense strength, you are the person who has access to all the channels and this small tequila brand is coming to you saying, hey, I want to get in. Well, of course, you're going to say like, great, here's the cost of the here's the cost of entry. Let us know, you know, we'll tell you where to send the check. And mm -hmm. there's just no incentive on their part with a not established brand to bend. And I think what we're seeing is Sazerac's portfolio, Sazerac's premium spirits are perhaps more valuable than RNDC believed because you have to imagine it does not help uh, RNDC to lose one of the biggest spirits companies, one of the most highly prized sets of especially whiskeys in the marketplace. And regardless of how much else they have to fill in the gaps, losing this product, especially losing it to presumably one of their large competitors, is going to hurt. There's no way around that. Yeah, and I think Zach brings up the point that's very relevant in the marketplace. If you're a small producer, you have no leverage, right? 
and Sazerac has leverage, and R&DC is the second or third biggest distributor. So outside of Southern, probably no one has more leverage than them. So, you know, you're you're talking mismatches, right? And, uh, you know, you see these lawsuits, you see these disputes happening really at lower levels, right? So suppose uh, this tequila company did have the million dollars, right? And they went out and they hustled and they went out and got clients. But, you know, they were kind of fourth or fifth on the list for a distributor and they didn't have the million dollars. It's really hard for them to get their distributor to act, right? And to market things for them. So, you know, you're you're talking about, Sazerac, you're talking about the elephant meeting the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And with the tequila company, it's really the elephant versus the mouse here. Right. Um, and while we have you on the show here, Sean, I think I, one final question for you for myself here. Uh, I'm going to ask you to speculate, and I'm not sure whether that's something you'd like to do as someone who's in the legal profession. But obviously, we've spoken about this does have huge financial ramifications, both the lawsuit itself for whoever wins, but also on RNDC's bottom line now that they no longer have these products. But to what extent did you get the sense that the counterclaim was also filed uh, with the greater intention of trying to bolster and protect the three-tier system and the importance of the distributor tier of that network? You know, I, I think RNDC really, when you look at this, they did focus a little bit on the three-tier system, but they also focused on themselves, right? Because not only did they lose this claim, they got hit with that. They were dishonest and they were looking, you know, breaching contract and they weren't doing their job, right? So I think this is kind of, um, they had it, they had to save face a little bit and say, Hey, there's another side of the story. Right. And we look at this and none of us here today can sit there and say who's right or wrong because we don't know the facts and they'll come out in discovery. So I think they had to come out and, um, do something because, you know, with the first lawsuit, it looked bad for them. That's very interesting stuff. Yeah, no, I appreciate appreciate your context there and, and sharing with us. Definitely is one of those I think we will see continue to evolve. And kind of like the Michael Jackson meme eating popcorn here. Like I said, we don't often get these things playing out in public. So when we do, and, and, and for those of us who cover this and follow these things quite closely, it's been an interesting week. Yeah, you, you know, I always say with this and the Proby lawsuit, you know, the world hasn't been this exciting since Al Capone ran liquor in Chicago. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Sean, again, thank you so much for your time really, and your insight. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Tim. All right, Tim. So to finish up here on Friday, I thought it'd be fun. You know, sometimes on the Friday podcast, we taste things. And, and given that this lawsuit involved Sazerac, which is both, of course, a spirits company and a famous cocktail, and you are, of course the host of Cocktail College, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Sazerac. And in my case, at least, and I think in yours, to make a Sazerac, Sazerac. So, you know, whatever. That's always fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, Tim, can you talk a little bit about the Sazerac? And, and you'll maybe plug the episode where you covered it, because um, it's a great drink. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic drink on a personal level. It's my favorite whiskey cocktail. Um I think it's, I know, I know there's a lot of big contenders in there, you know, just thinking of Manhattan and old fashioned, but for me personally, it's a drink I love. Um, It's got this real iconic history. Um, It's a New Orleans cocktail, 
as so many of the greats from this country are. Um, and basically, yeah, for, for anyone who's maybe less familiar, this is rye whiskey based, generally mixed with some kind of sweetening agent. I, if, if possible, I like to go for a rich Demerara simple syrup. And then it's served in a absinthe rinsed glass uh, with an optional uh, lemon twist garnish. And I'm missing two of the most important factors of the drink, which is Peychaud's bitters and Angostura bitters. So yeah, just all round great cocktail. I think one of the reasons I love it compared to the old fashioned is that it's served up, well, or served down, generally speaking, but without ice. Yeah. So yeah, when, when I was learning, when I was bartending and learning cocktails, one of the the interesting things to me about the Sazerac is it's a very rare cocktail that's served that served, you know, kind of not over ice, but also not served in a, you know, in a coupe or in a martini glass or something like that. That it is mm-hmm. very classically served in a double rocks glass, no ice, you know, garnished or potentially not garnished. I think I think in the episode you guys had a long discourse about what's what one should do exactly with the lemon twist. Yeah. You know, whether it should be dropped into the cocktail or served alongside or whatever. You know, it, those of you who don't already listen to Cocktail College, it's that kind of content for sure. Lots of incredible <laughs> yeah. details, arguably a little bit of minutia, but that's what that's what we come to it for. Yeah, we get into the weeds at times. I will say I did really love, so the guest was Neil Bodenheimer, who's uh-huh. based in New Orleans and runs um, Cure, runs a couple bars that are really good. Um I liked how he said he likes to place his garnish on the on the rim of the glass and then leave it up to chance to see whether that <laughs> makes its way into the glass or not. I do have a little take for you here, Zach, as Please. you know, I'm, I generally do have a takes. I actually, when I make this drink for myself, I serve it in a coupe. Oh. I enjoy it more served up than down i think it's a really wonderful i hope i'm not getting that down terminology wrong i'm questioning myself here but basically yeah um i i just think this drink lends itself a lot more being a spirit forward whiskey cocktail that's not on the rocks i want to see it in a nice coupe glass so that's how i'm enjoying mine today so i would think that the only argument in favor of serving it in a rocks glass is that if you do a proper absinthe rinse, some of the absinthe will kind of stick to the glass above where the wash line is for the cocktail. And therefore you get more of the aromatic component from the absinthe as you kind of nose the glass, as opposed to in a coupe where you're going to fill it to the, essentially to the brim and have not much room for that absinthe to kind of hit your nose before you taste the drink. That would be to me, the only argument in favor of this, you know, kind of classic presentation. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and, you know, we have had some bartenders on that show too, also when it, when talking about absinthe rinses, being like, well, why not actually incorporate that absinthe into the build of the drink rather than just a seasoning on the glass, which I think it's an interesting concept, but perhaps food for a different discussion. Well, and it kind of comes back to what you're intending for the primary purpose of the absinthe to be. If it's to integrate into the cocktail more fully, then yeah, you should probably build it, you know, put it into the build. And if you want it more for its aromatic components, which I think in drinks that call for an absinthe rinse, that's really kind of what you're going for, then it makes more sense to to me to actually do that. But hang mm-hmm. on, let's so you you made possibly the world's most expensive uh Sazerac. Tell tell us about it. Yeah, so uh you know, it just so happened that over here at the Vine Pair office we've run out of the standard Sazerac rye, which is a fantastic product and um is also side note here, like basically almost responsible for the resurgence or or the fact that rye 
yeah. maintained its presence in America for, for many years. But um, we didn't have a bottle of that. But I was lucky enough to have a small sample bottle here of um, the 2022 Buffalo Trace Antique Collection 18-year-old Sazerac rye. So I thought, why not enjoy that in a cocktail? Yeah. My goodness. I just have the six-year classic Sazerac, <laughs> which, as you said, is a great, great rye. But definitely not – doesn't uh, – kind of uh blow up the uh the pricing of the drink quite the same way but uh anyhow cheers to you tim let's let's taste here cheers zach yeah oh getting these aromatics from the coop you know so you've said tim that this is your favorite whiskey cocktail and i know that maybe part of it is the presentation but what is it about the the way that the flavors of this cocktail come together that make it more appealing to you than other kind of classic whiskey cocktails so I think that the closest example to this is probably the old-fashioned, right? Yeah. When you just look at the build and the ingredients. And generally speaking, I find the old-fashioned to be a delicious drink, but not too much. It's not all that different from basically drinking whiskey neat, right? You have some extra sweetness and you introduce aromatic bitters and a garnish. Yeah. So I think that A, the introduction of absinthe and all those incredible aromatics that that brings to the party, as you mentioned, that helps the cocktail for me. But then also just be, I don't generally like cocktails served on the rocks. I like things that are served, yeah, without ice. So maybe that's also part of my reasoning there. So I want to add a piece to this that I think is important because I was thinking about it when we were discussing kind of doing this for this episode. I think the other critical function of absinthe in this drink and one that is helps explain why maybe you and, and I think even I maybe prefer a Sazerac to an old fashioned is that the absinthe, even as just a rinse or as a wash, dries the cocktail out a touch, obviously yeah. in, in concert with the bitters. And it just kind of tweaks the balance slightly. You know, a thing about an old fashioned is like, to me, an old fashioned is a great drink, but it it is very hard to keep a, a properly made old fashioned from just slightly or perhaps extremely tipping over onto the sweet side. You know, yes, if you use a very kind of austere rye and very little simple, you can kind of avoid it. But but functionally, an old fashioned to me is like a slightly sweet drink, not aggressively sweet, but but slightly so. And a properly made Sazerac, I think, really kind of does not tip into sweetness at all. And in fact, you really need the sugar, however you're adding it, whether it's your rich Demerara or simple or whatever, to keep the cocktail from being kind of aggressively, you know, dry, frankly. And it's that properly made balance point where you get all of the flavors that come through from the rye, from the absinthe, from the bitters. And the sweetness that you've added just keeps that from being slightly unpleasant. Um, and so to me, that's, I think, the other reason is that, like, you can introduce this additional flavor and aroma via the absinthe, and you can strike, I think, a slightly more, pal to me, a slightly more palatable balance. And because you're stirring this drink and, and, you know, sort of slightly diluting it, you are getting a little bit gentler expression of the whiskey than just drinking said whiskey neat. Now, maybe if you're drinking Sazerac 18-year rye, Drinking it neat is probably just fine and dandy, but if you're drinking a younger rye, it does tend to need a little tempering. It's just the reality of rye. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And and hearing you kind of lay out that equation there and how all of these different ingredients and flavors come together, I do find it surprising that something as intense as absinthe can have the effect of actually bringing everything together in more harmony here. But I guess that's the magic of cocktails, right? It truly is. Tim, this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to hearing more about 
the next incredibly uh, ostentatious cocktail you make. And uh, <laughs> again, w- uh, please go ahead. I was just going to say, I, there will be people out there listening who think I'm just doing that as a flex. I've long been of the belief that fancier, older, more expensive spirits should be used in cocktails when possible, right? If it's yeah. financially viable and that they should be able to hold up. People yes. being like, that's a waste of Sazerac 18. No, it's only a waste if the product doesn't hold up in the cocktail. For sure. And in this case, I'm happy to confirm that it does. Yes. And I think also it's a, it's an ideal kind of cocktail for that sort of expression that it, mm-hmm. it still is very, you know, it's obviously very spirit forward. It allows you to kind of see just another dimension to the rye as opposed to potentially kind of obscuring it with, with the other ingredients, which is a perfectly valid thing to do with lots of cocktails, but maybe not one you'd want to use an ultra top shelf uh, spirit on. So yeah. anyhow, Tim, lots of fun, super informative. Thanks again to Sean O'Leary for joining us. And uh, I will talk to you again on Monday. Thanks, Zach. Chat to you then. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.